And so this morning, as we are continuing through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we find ourselves at the beginning of Matthew 19. And if you recall, last week we actually skipped ahead a bit into Matthew 19, but I didn't want to uh, overlook this text. The, the Word of God exhorts us to consider every word that He has given to us. And so we find ourselves this morning in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. And let us hear now the words of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have You not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer but one flesh, two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Then the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, is it not better to not marry? But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to hear, or who is able to receive this, receive it. This is the word of the Lord. Now, There are certainly some things that, as pastors, we really don't enjoy touching upon in a sermon, and divorce is one of those things. However, if we take seriously our calling to exhort and open the entire Word of God to God's people, then we cannot ignore what Jesus says regarding divorce here, because it is part of God's inspired and holy Word. It is God's Word to us. And especially considering how commonplace something like divorce is today, we cannot treat it flippantly or push it aside. That said, though, I am aware of the sensitivity of this subject that Jesus is opening before us this morning. I mean, his words are definitely hard to hear, and and I am aware that they may expose old wounds and emotional scars and maybe even deep-seated guilt. The sad reality is that the prevalence of divorce in our culture today means that there is not a person within this congregation who has not been touched by it in some way or another. We've all felt the bitter pain that it brings. Some of us are mothers and fathers who have watched our children spiral through the heartache of a divorce. Some of us are children who have had our hearts broken as we watched mom and dad separate. And perhaps we felt uh, somehow that we were to blame, that we carry some measure of responsibility in the failure of that relationship. 
Some of us had stood on the sidelines as we watched uh, siblings, brothers and sisters or friends uh, who have gone through the bitterness of a separation in their marriage. And some of us may have even experienced divorce personally. So all of us, in some way, in some capacity, we've been touched by the harsh reality of divorce in this world. And with that in mind, I start by saying that what Jesus actually says here, I understand it's probably going to hurt. It's going to bring pain. It may even bring up those old feelings of guilt. But I want you to know, and I wish I didn't have to start a sermon this way, I want you to know, because of the way the church has horribly treated some divorced people, that Jesus' words to you are words of comfort and forgiveness and hope. It is not my intent to bring shame and negative stigma upon you, as the church has done to many divorced people, but to hear his words and then hear the comfort that the gospel of Christ brings. And so as we tread upon this delicate ground, I want you to listen to Jesus with an open heart and an open mind. The law of God always crushes us. That's what it's designed to do, to bring us to our knees, to see that we are a needy people, that we have sinned against the Lord of heaven and earth, and we need his mercy. But that when we do fall on our knees, we do find his mercy. And so I invite you, stay with me as we walk through what Jesus says here. The first thing that we see that helps us to understand his teaching on divorce is is to understand his teaching on marriage. And that is that marriage is a divinely appointed union. It is a divinely appointed union. In fact, if we are going to fully understand his teaching on divorce, we have to understand that foundation that he is building his words upon that foundation of marriage. Here in Matthew 19, we again see the Pharisees testing Jesus as they have been doing every time they encounter him. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day are, of course, always trying to find that, that gotcha moment. And so they throw these questions at Jesus, trying to expose him as a fraud, as, as a false teacher. And this time, the question centers around divorce. And they say, well, is it lawful to divorce one's wife without cause? And that question is very revealing and has much to do with the context of of Jesus' teaching on divorce here in Matthew's Gospel. And so we're going to actually come back to that question later. But for the moment, I want us to zoom in on Christ's answer to them. Jesus' answer comes to them and calls them back to the very foundation of the world, the very creation of it. Of the universe. And he asked the Pharisees, Have you not read uh, who created them, speaking of marriage, from the beginning and made them male and female? He's calling us back to what God did at the very beginning of time. And Genesis 2, there we find, after the creation of the world and the creation of Adam as the first man, that God has assigned him with a task, uh, a, a role, a job of naming the new creatures of this creation, this great world that he has designed. However, amongst the abundance of this garden that he has placed him in, teeming with life, 
We're told in Genesis 2 that there was not a helper fit for him. There wasn't a companion amongst all of creation fit for Adam. And so God then creates Eve, the woman, to be his wife. And we read of that in Genesis 2, 21 through 24. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And that's the foundation to which Jesus is appealing in his answer to the Pharisees concerning concerning divorce. He's showing that it is indeed a divinely appointed union. It's rooted in the created order itself. And that has a few implications that help us to see why he says what he does about divorce and to see what God actually desires of his people. And the first one is this. If, if, if it is of a, uh, a divinely appointed union, then marriage is not and can never be a human invention. It's not some cultural thing that man came up with. That's why Christ said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And yet divorce presumes to do just that. Divorce tells the creator that God's work is not good enough, that his institutions are unwise, that his design is imperfect. Divorce is telling the creator that his creation just isn't good and we can do something better. Yet Jesus' words here are very clear. God is placing a divine dignity and value upon the institution of marriage by emphasizing the the fact that it is crafted by our wise and all-powerful creator at the very founding of human society. In fact, it is the very first human society that God forms. In bringing Adam and Eve together, he sets a pattern for all of humanity to follow. And so because of that, there is no other way to define marriage other than the way God does it in his word. It's not a human uh, invention. It's God's invention. It is one man, he says, joined to one woman for life. The Bible leaves no room for anything other than that. That is the plain wording of Scripture. Anything else would be a rebellion against what God has established. And so we cannot assume it to be of human origin, a human invention. Secondly, because it is a divine institution that God has given to man, it is uh, marriage is also designed then by God for humanity's flourishing. Jesus says in verse 6, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God gave marriage so that a man and a woman might find enjoyment in each other, and in doing so bring life into this world. I love how Calvin explains it. He, He says that God created marriage so that there would be human beings on earth who might cultivate mutual society between themselves. In other words, God gave 
us marriage so that we might prosper in this world, that we might develop culture, that we might build community, all which constitute human flourishing. And so marriage, then, is not this antiquated relic of an ancient uh, repressive ideology as our current post-Christian culture tells us it is. Rather, it is the very vehicle that drives human culture, society, and life in this world that God has created. So by his divinely appointed union of marriage, God has preserved human life in this world despite the corruption of sin. And that's one of the reasons we refer to marriage as a common grace. That means it is not just for Christians. It is not just for believers. It is for the believer and the non-believer, the Christian and the non-Christian. It is a gift that God has given the world in general. Even the very roles that God designs in marriage promote our flourishing. Marriage is not a bond of Inequality based on ancient patriarchal notions that men are superior to women. God didn't design it that way at all. When he says that he makes Eve a helper fit for him, he's not saying that she is somehow inferior or unequal to him. What he's saying is that they complement each other, that she is a suitable helper, that she makes up for what he lacks and vice versa. It's similar to... And if you're a musician, you probably understand this a little bit better. That if, if, if I were to go over to the piano here and play a D note, uh, it wouldn't sound like an F sharp. And if I played an F sharp, it wouldn't sound like a D. Now, those of us that might not be musically inclined probably wouldn't know what they are. But we would tell that they don't sound the same. They sound different. But when you play them together, you you begin to get a chord, a beautiful harmony. That's the idea here behind marriage. You have two different people, two different roles played together. They create this unique, beautiful harmony that God has designed. And so marriage then is this divinely appointed union. And with that, that is the foundation he begins, Jesus begins to unpack to us what divorce is. So if marriage is this divinely appointed union, divorce is a tragic disunion. The first thing to note here is that uh, in, in Jesus and the Pharisees' discussion is that it is regarding the legal nature of divorce. So the Pharisees, they, they again, they come up to Jesus and they ask that question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife without cause? The Pharisees asked Jesus this question because of a controversy that existed within their own ranks regarding what was a legitimate reason for divorce, what was permitted under their law. And the controversy surrounded a particular part of God's civil law to the nation state of Israel. We read of that in, in Deuteronomy 24.1. God tells Israel as a nation, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. So the, the controversy surrounded this phrase, some indecency. What, what is that? Well, there are really two schools of thought that the Pharisees had. One was the school of Shammai. They took the very strict hardline approach. They believed that some indecency only spoke of adultery, of, of unfaithfulness in the marriage. And if one party was unfaithful or the other, um, a certificate of divorce could be given. There was also, though, the school of Hevelel, which took a wider approach to some indecency. Uh, and we find examples of this even within the Mishnah, which is that authoritative collection of uh, exegetical material, the law, different interpretations that the Pharisees took. And so they would argue things like, well, some indecency can simply be if the wife burns her husband's meal. And he doesn't like that, so he can give her a certificate of divorce. Or if he doesn't find her attractive anymore. Both of those were considered to be some indecency and thus permissible reason for a divorce under the law. Now, when we read God's law in the Old Testament, it is important to understand that there is a division within God's law. There are actually three aspects to it. There is the moral law of God, that is the Ten Commandments. There is the ceremonial law of God. Those were laws pertaining to the worship of God's people in the Old Testament under the old administration of the covenant of grace. And the third division is the civil law. Those were laws that were given to the, for the administration of Israel as a nation state. Now, one of the key differences between these three divisions of the law is that only the moral law is seen as continuous throughout the scriptures. The ceremonial law was a temporary directive for worship, a, a shadow which pointed the people of God in the Old Testament to the person of Jesus Christ. And when Christ came, the shadow of the ceremonial law wasn't needed because the reality to which it pointed had arrived. Now, the general principle of worship being prescribed by God is still in existence and in substance, but the circumstances have changed. And so we don't offer up sacrifices like our brethren in the Old Testament did. We don't need to because Jesus was the once for all sacrifice who gave himself up willfully for our atonement. And as noted, the civil law was given to guide Israel as a sovereign nation state. When Christ came, the covenant promises expanded beyond ethnic and civil Israel, and they are now applied to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So that while the civil laws certainly are helpful and good for a society to consider, and many of them are indeed rooted in principles found in God's permanent moral law, they are not uh, permanently binding upon the church because the church is not a nation state like Israel. And here is why those distinctions are important. Because the text that the Pharisees are questioning Jesus about is contained in that third part of the law, the civil law of Israel. It is not part of the morally binding eternal law of God as summarized in his Ten Commandments. 
And so the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to take one side or another regarding a, a controversy that surrounded this civil law given to the nation of Israel. And so Jesus responds to them, as we've already looked at, by showing that marriage is this divinely appointed union. And within that, we also understand then that how God views marriage. As his divinely appointed union, God views marriage as a permanent covenant. And so Jesus is directing our attention in his response back to this dignity that God places on marriage by emphasizing its permanence in God's eyes. Again, notice what he says in his response in verses 4 through 6. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, let a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh? So, They are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is taking the Pharisees back past that civil law to the very natural law of God, back to that point in creation. He wanted the Pharisees, he wants us to see marriage as God does, as a permanent covenant. You see, This world, our culture, often has made the same mistake the Pharisees have. We ask, what is permissible then for divorce? What reasons can be given? What is a good reason to leave my spouse? And of course, with that as the starting question, it's easy to rationalize any number of reasons well, we're just not compatible with each other. We're, we're too different. Uh, we don't have the same interests. We, we, we can't get along. My needs are not being met. And uh, we just fell out of love. And, and on and on is the response. You see, when we ask that question, what is the permissible reason for a divorce? It actually reveals a heart issue. It shows that we're not thinking about marriage as God thinks of it, as a permanent covenant, a lifelong commitment, a covenant relationship. And consider Jesus' words again. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Christ's words on divorce are are just as powerful and heart-probing as his prior teachings we have seen in the Gospel of Matthew on things like anger and lust. To divorce and to remarry with one exception, which we're going to look at in a moment, is to be guilty of breaking, Jesus says, the seventh commandment by committing adultery. And so what begins to emerge then is that this existence of divorce in the world is rooted in the same ground from which grows every failed relationship, not just marriage. And that is the hardness of sinful hearts, which leads us to our next takeaway concerning this tragic disunion. And that is this, is that divorce is not a requirement of God's law, but rather a recognition of the hardness of the human heart. And in verse 7, the Pharisees respond to Jesus 
Jesus has just, again, taken them back to creation, saying what God's joined together, let not man separate. And they say, well, we think we got you this time, because why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? I mean, God seems to be commanding it, doesn't doesn't he, Jesus? This certificate of divorce was a legal document prepared by a husband and given to a wife, freeing her from any obligation to him. And so Jesus replies then to the Pharisees, he says, Moses gave you this, or he allowed you to divorce your wives. Why? Because of the hardness of your heart. But Pharisees, from the beginning, it was not so. That wasn't the intention. That isn't what God had designed. See, Jesus doesn't deny that the law, the legal law, permitted divorce. In fact, he gives in verse 9 a scenario where it is permissible, that is when one party has been unfaithful. And then also we see in the New Testament later uh, in the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.15 that he gives another circumstance where divorce, though tragic, is permissible. That is when a husband or a wife abandons their spouse. And and from that we would imply, of course, that uh, situations of abuse are permissible since abuse is the abandonment of the vow to protect and care for another. The Bible does not forbid divorce. But the important thing is this, neither does it command it, rather it regulates it for certain situations. Yet what is evident here in Christ's teaching is that even a permissible divorce finds its root in the hardness of the human heart. That's where his emphasis is. And we shouldn't be surprised by that at all because the failure of any human relationship is rooted in the hardness of our hearts, in our sinful natures. The Bible teaches us that there is sin within us and that when we act upon that, when we do sin, we wound and we hurt others. It teaches us that due to the corrupting influence of the world, there is even a hardness outside ourselves that impacts our relationships in negative ways. And so when parents are at odds and in conflict with their children, it's due to the hardness of sin. When lifelong friends have a falling out, it is due to hearts that have been affected by sin. When colleagues at work can't get along or have uh, conflicts uh, with, with each other or with their, uh, with their management, it's due to the hardness of sin. And when a married couple goes through the bitter pain and the emotional agony of divorce, it's, it's due to the hardness of sin, even in permissible reasons. Because something like adultery, unfaithfulness, that is the result of sin. That is sin. I mean, think about it. This goes all the way back even to the first time sin enters into the world. When Adam and Eve rebel against God, they break his law. What happens? There is the dissolution, the disunion, the breaking of a relationship between God and man. I mean, Adam and Eve enjoyed this perfect relationship with the triune God of the universe till they decided to go and break his law. And where they once played in a garden of beauty with their almighty creator, they now find themselves making every possible effort to hide from his righteous gaze. 
And it is because of that tragic disunion we suffer so many other tragic disunions in this endless cascade of heartbreak, including divorce. And that leaves us feeling pretty awful, does it not? I mean, Jesus' words really are hard to bear, but there's some hope here. You see, when we look into scriptures and we see what the Bible says about marriage and divorce, we learn that while our sin-hardened hearts do bring about this tragic disunion, there's something beautiful that fixes all of that. And that beauty is the gospel. You see, in Christ Jesus, no matter what uh, heartache and disunion we have suffered in our lives, including divorce, in Christ we experience a blessed reunion. As we noted earlier, God views marriage as a covenant relationship, that is to say a relationship that is based on vows and promises that result in blessing when those vows and promises are kept. And we see that marriage is presented in the scriptures as a picture or a metaphor of God and his relationship with his people. Particularly, we see that Christ is viewed as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. And that motif comes up both in the Old Testament and the New. Perhaps the most uh, well-known text, though, is Ephesians chapter 5, where we read, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I mean, there's so much good going on in that text that we don't even have time to unpack all of it. But the thing that I want to draw your attention to that should give you hope is this, is remember, divorce is a tragic disunion that results from the greater disunion between God and man as a result of sin. But Christ, as Paul writes here, as the bridegroom of the church creates this blessed reunion, he restores the broken relationship He brings us back into fellowship with God. And so what that means is this. Whatever your status is this morning, divorced, married, remarried, single, whatever uh, tragic uh, disunions have plagued your past, filled your heart with guilt and shame, uh, be they divorce or, or, or some other broken relationship, you can be assured That in Christ Jesus, you are washed of all of that. You are now presented in Christ before God in splendor with no blemish, no condemnation. And that, my friends, that's the hope we all need. And so Jesus calls you to look to him as your bridegroom, church, to rejoice in a love that, as Paul writes in Romans, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Briefly in closing, I think there's two practical 
applications that we take away from that truth that in Christ we experience this blessed reunion. The first is this. We, we ask the question, what should those who are Christians, who are part of the church, but have also been divorced, what should they do when they feel the weight of accusation of Jesus' words here in Matthew 19? They should do what all of us should do when we feel the weight of God's law, whether it's regarding our struggles with anger or lust or pride or greed. And that is that we should actually embrace the accusation of God's law. We should admit in repentance and faith that, yes, we are guilty before a holy God. And when we do that, we enjoy his gracious pardon. How do you keep Jesus' commands that he gives in this gospel? You keep them by bowing before the righteous judgment and appealing to the one who is already judged by them on your behalf. That is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Secondly, something that we all must do when we feel the weight of God's law is to actually participate as Christians who have been baptized and trust Christ and are made part of his body, we should participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, we read of that in Revelation 17. Uh, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, with the fine linen in the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we read that and we say, well, yeah, that sounds like a beautiful wedding party. Who doesn't love a good wedding party? But isn't that future? Isn't that something that takes present in the future? Well, yes, it is. But like all aspects of Christ's kingdom, there is an already that exists now and there is not yet. That not yet is to come But what is the already? What can we enjoy? How can we participate in what is described here? How can we celebrate this reunion of God's people as the bride to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ? Well, God has left us a sign that points to the truth of this thing that is signified. And that is Jesus' broken body and blood as portrayed within the Lord's Supper. You see, the sign of the Lord's Supper is an earthly expression, in a sense, of that marriage supper of the Lamb. It is something that Christ invites us to, to celebrate with Him the reunion that all believers enjoy. And so, brothers and sisters, whatever your past may be, whatever relationships you have gone through that have... uh, fallen into this tragic disunion because of your sin and the sin of others, you can come to Jesus. You can come to Him right now in faith and you can fellowship with Him, with the bridegroom, spiritually at His table, celebrating in this meal. And one day, this meal that we celebrate in, in part, will be fulfilled, and we will sit at that table with the Lamb forever. 
And all of our sin, all of that disunion, all of that heartache will be no more because we will be with the Lord forever. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful that despite all the hurt and the pain and the relationships that are broken and imperfect in this world, that there is one relationship that is perfect because not of what we have done, but because our perfect Savior has made it so. He has come to us and received us to Himself, and through His blood we are washed clean of every spot, every blemish, all shame and guilt is put aside under the grace and the mercy of the gospel. And so, Father, we thank you for that blessed reunion, that we are united to you now as your people for all eternity. Father, I pray for those who do not know this, uh, this great union that they have in Christ, that still feel the weight of their sin because they have never come in faith and repentance. I ask, Father, that you would open their eyes and their hearts and help them to know the love of Christ that is found within his gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.